22.17 Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise, and apply your heart to my knowledge. For it is a pleasant thing if you keep them within you. Let them all be fixed upon your lips. So that your trust may be in the Lord, I have instructed you today, even you. Have I not written to you excellent things of counsels and knowledge, that I may make you know the certainty of the words of truth, that you may answer words of truth to those who send to you? Do not rob the poor because he is poor, nor oppress the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord will plead their cause and plunder the soul of those who plunder them. Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man do not go, lest you learn his ways and set a snare for your soul. Do not be one of those who shakes hands in a pledge, one of those who is surety for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should he take away your bed from under you? Do not remove the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. Do you see a man who excels in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before unknown men. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you are a man given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. Do not overwork to be rich. Because of your own understanding, cease. Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. Do not eat the bread of a miser, nor desire his delicacies. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, he says to you. But his heart is not with you. The morsel you have eaten, you will vomit up and waste your pleasant words. Do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of your words. Do not remove the ancient landmark, nor enter the fields of the fatherless, for their Redeemer is mighty. He will plead their cause against you. Apply your heart to instruction, and your ears to words of knowledge. Do not withhold correction from a child, for if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. He shall beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. My son, if your heart is wise, my heart will rejoice. Indeed, I myself, yes, my inmost being will rejoice when your lips speak right things. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day. For surely there is a hereafter, and your hope will not be cut off. Hear, my son, and be wise, and guide your heart in the way. Do not mix with wine-bibbers or with gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and drowsiness will clothe a man with rags. Listen to your father who begot you, and do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy the truth, and do not sell it. Also wisdom and instruction, and understanding. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice, and he who begets a wise child will delight in him. Let your father and your mother be glad, and let her who bore you rejoice. My son, give me your heart, and let your eyes observe my ways. For a harlot is a deep pit, and a seductress is a narrow well. She also lies in wait as for a victim, 
and increases the unfaithful among men. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine. Those who go in search of mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. At the last it bites like a, vi- like a serpent and stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you'll be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea or like one who lies at the top of the mast saying, They have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me. But I did not feel it. When shall I awake? That I may seek another drink. Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. For their heart devises violence, and their lips talk of troublemaking. Through wisdom, a house is built, and by understanding it is established. By knowledge, the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. A wise man is strong. Yes, a man of knowledge increases strength. For by wise counsel you will wage your own war, and in a multitude of counselors there is safety. Wisdom is too lofty for a fool. He does not open his mouth in the gate. He who plots to do evil will be called a schemer. The devising of foolishness is sin, and the scoffer is an abomination to men. If you faint in the day of adversity... Your strength is small. Deliver those who are drawn toward death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, surely we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? My son, eat honey because it is good. And the honeycomb which is sweet to your taste. So shall the knowledge of wisdom be to your soul. If you have found it, there is a prospect, and your hope will not be cut off. Do not lie in wait, a wicked man against the dwelling of the righteous. Do not plunder his resting place, for a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked shall fall by calamity. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles, lest the Lord see it, and it displease him, and he turn away his wrath from him. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the wicked, for there will be no prospect for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. My son, fear the Lord and the King. Do not associate with those given to change. For their calamity will rise suddenly. And who knows the ruin those two can bring. You may be seated. All right, so we're in the middle of the 30 sayings of the wise. We're in section B. We reviewed the prologue, and we reviewed also section A that had, the prologue was a saying, and then we had ten sayings that existed in in section A. Section B, we have nine sayings, 
They are about the obedient son. Another way of looking at this is this section is about covenant relationship across generations. The compact across generations. The first seven sayings focus upon the son and then there's a collapsing into the end. There's a structure in the, the last... Um, well, not the last one, the second to last. Saying 19 is a chiasm. So there's a structure internally to it. And then you have the last saying, saying 20 there, which reminds of one of the lessons that was taught earlier on in saying 15. And so we have this sort of structure here. We, we have a, an introduction that fits with all of the introductions that we see over and over again. Saying 12 Apply your heart to instruction and your ears to words of knowledge. So often we see the introductory statements are a reminder to get wisdom or to pay attention to the teaching. So there we have it. I have given titles to these and as an attempt to sort of summarize the doctrine there. I would say that saying 12 is essentially telling us pay attention to teaching and put yourself under good teaching. Another way you can say that is, pay attention to teaching, and find teaching that's worth paying attention to. So many people go to church, and there's preaching, and it's hard to pay attention to the preaching. And the reason could be, you have a bad speaker. The other reason could be, that it's hardly worth paying attention to. If you find that that's consistently the case, there's a problem, there's a need for reformation. God forbid that that should happen from this pulpit. If it does, may He cause reformation. May He cause change. It's our duty to apply our hearts to instruction. And it's our duty to make sure that our words, sorry, that our ears have the words of knowledge pounding the eardrums. And so, I want to look at this from a couple of perspectives. First of all, There are two dangerous views of manhood that are propagated in our culture. One is an effeminate and weak manhood that makes sure that you could never possibly be accused of mansplaining anything. If you're not mansplaining, you're probably not acting like a man. You should explain things. It's a responsibility of men to speak. The second thing is this tendency to say that men, when they're really tough, are just silent. You have the John Wayne type. The, I don't apologize, I don't explain myself, I don't teach people, just look at what I'm doing. Fathers, it is your duty to not be silent. It is your job to teach. It is your job to give instruction. It is your job to speak. We're not going over it today, but in the later part of the 30 sayings, you saw that thing about how those who have innocent blood being spilled, how there's a need to do something and to say something there. There's a need to speak to stop evil. There's a need to speak against evil. There's a need to teach righteousness. There's a need to proclaim truth. There's a need to rightly label things. One of the Christian virtues that is often yelled down by Christians is rightly labeling things. Jesus used names like viper, whitewashed tomb. 
right? Those types of sayings. We have to be willing to call heretics heretics. We have to be willing to call vipers vipers. We have to be willing to say those kinds of things. Fathers, you are called to speak. We have to be willing to refer to harlotry as harlotry. We have to label things. When fathers engage, what they need to do is to teach their sons and daughters, their wives, how to rightly label. A part of the teaching that has to occur is as art is engaged with, there is a need to deal with explaining that art as you deal with it with children. You're teaching them how to interpret the world. You're teaching them how to consider movies. You're teaching them how to deal with books. So it is the duty of those in authority to not be silent. There's a duty to explain. Sons and daughters, listen. Give your attention. There is a congregants. Listen. Give your attention. You have an obligation to find good teaching and to take it in. This is a part of the first commandment to gain the knowledge of God by worshiping and glorifying God according to His Word. And the second commandment to use the means that He's appointed. If you are under teaching, one of the ways you can break the third commandment, one of the ways you can take the Lord's name in vain, is to have teaching occur and to not give heed to the truth in it. The prophet Jeremiah had the experience of having people come and hear his preaching and even commend it, but to not apply it. Saying 13, discipline your children, or discipline your child, he will gain spiritual life. Now let's, let's read the, the verse. It says, do not withhold correction from a child, for if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. You will beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. And so you, you first read this, and it sort of sounds like you should... Be the child with a rod, he will not die. It sounds like an explanation of because, and it's because if you beat the child with a rod, it's not like he's going to die, it's not like you're going to kill him. Right? That's, that's kind of the, the way it sounds like. And I think that's actually one of the intended ways of hearing it. It's, it's, a, it's a true way of communicating that discipline is not going to kill a child. And it's sort of comical. But the second way of understanding it that communicates more is if you strike the child with the rod in the context of wise instruction, then discipline will save the child from spiritual death. It's saying you will strike the child with the rod and deliver his soul from hell. There's a teaching function for physical discipline. The father instructs the son 
to instruct his son. Think about this for a second. This is a father speaking to a son. This isn't just somebody saying, hey, fathers, you should use physical discipline with your children. No, this is the father talking to the son, and the father saying to the son is, hey, son, make sure to use the rod as a part of your instruction to your own children. This is about how teaching goes across generations. One of the roles of pastors, one of the roles of grandfathers, is to encourage parents to not pamper their kids. Why is that? Well, there's a general tendency when you're close to your children, when you care about your children, to go, well, I don't want to cause them pain, and hearing them cry is rough. However, it's more rough for the child to grow up to be rotten. It's more rough for the child to be a fool. And foolishness is bound up in the heart of children. And the rod of correction drives foolishness far from the child. So what we have here is this statement of one of the ways that God has commanded us to seek the spiritual well-being of our children is to use the rod. Fourteen. My son, if your heart is wise, my heart will rejoice. Indeed, I myself, yes, my inmost being will rejoice when your lips speak right things. So, Before I go into the general meeting, I want to point out a couple of technical things here. First, notice the use of the word heart. The word heart is all over the 30 sayings of the wise. What is that talking about? Is the heart like the mystical feeling place that Disney represents? Is the heart um, the will? Is the heart emotions? What is the heart? The heart is the inward man. The heart is the mind. The heart is the spirit. There is a unitary inward whole. And you are a rational creature. You are the image of God. You are a knower. You are a purposer. You are a chooser. It all occurs with the inward man. That is the mind. That is the heart. The Bible uses lots of words for it. One of the ones you hear me say all the time as a way of kind of mocking the alternate doctrine is kidneys. And this is that verse. You see where it says inmost being? That word right there is kidneys. It's equating that to the heart. My son, if your heart is wise, my heart will rejoice. In other words, if in your mind you have wisdom, in my mind I'll be happy. My mind will rejoice when your lips speak right things. How do you, how do you know what's in somebody else's mind? Them speaking is a pretty good indicator. It's not an infallible indicator, but it's a sign. It's evidence. People can ape stuff back. They can lip service all over the place. But if they can't explain something, then there's an absence of evidence that they understand it. If they can't explain it, especially in multiple ways, or when asked questions in different ways, 
is a strong indicator of understanding. So, I, saying 14, here's what I think the general point here is. There's no greater joy than to see your children walk in the truth. So the father is saying, my son, if your heart is wise, my heart will rejoice. Indeed, I myself, yes, my inmost being will rejoice. Then, your, then your, when your lips speak right things. So my heart, I myself, my inmost beings, or my kidneys. Look at the three ways that the same thing is said. My heart, I myself, my inmost being. That's the same thing. That's the inner man. That's the mind. Remember earlier on about the, the, the miser who gives you stuff? As he is in his heart, so is he. As he thinks in his heart, so is he. The heart is the thinking thing. It's you. You are your heart. You are your thinker. You're the thinker. What we have here is a reality that connects to the fifth commandment. That we are to care for and love those who are under our authority. And the third commandment. That we should delight in the right use of God's word. That we should delight in the use of God's word with integrity. The wise heart is the reality that's hoped for. When you raise children, when you teach children, the reality you're hoping for is wisdom being put into the soul. And the heart of the father will rejoice when he sees wisdom residing in the heart of the son. Now, how does the Father see wisdom residing in the heart of the Son? The wise words on the lips. That's the sign. A profession of wise words at wise times, coming from the mouth of the Father, gives a sign of wisdom in the Father. And when that happens in the Son, it's a sign of wisdom, it's evidence to the Father. And so the Father first gives that example and then hopes to see that example in the Son. Seeing the external evidence of wisdom in the Son brings internal joy to the Father. And what this does is this provides a motive to teach for fathers. And notice we have mixed in these wise sayings, things about, you know, son, be wise, listen to the wise teaching, and also, hey, you need to teach your children. And so this gives an example. This gives an example to the son who's being instructed to know how to carry on and to seek to see the words of wisdom come from the mouth of his children coming down. This provides a motive to listen for the son. Learn to gain joy for yourself. Learn to give joy to your father. Learn to give joy to your future children. Learn to get joy in raising your future children. All that's laid out there. There's no greater joy than to see your children walk in the truth. Saying 15, when you see the short-term pleasures of sin, bring to mind the long-term pain. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day. 
For surely there is a hereafter, and your hope will not be cut off. This is a reminder of the Tenth Commandment. We're to be content with the true good of God and with the gifts that God has given to us. Sinners seem to have a lot of fun for a very limited time. They are miserable to be around for long. You ever seen like like life of the party people? They're sinning. They seem this person seems particularly to be having a good time. They're very fun. They are not fun when they don't have those things. They are miserable people. They are painful to be around. They are zombies when they don't have amusement. And if you're around them long enough, they will be pleasure vampires who suck off of your resources and seek to use you to be able to have those pleasures. The fleeting pleasures of sin and the fleeting fun of sinners is something that looks shiny and pleasant. But when you are around it long enough, the deceitful gloss wears off. It is far less painful to learn that lesson from instruction and teaching than to learn it by going through it. Do not let your heart envy sinners, but be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day. How do those things relate? Well, you see sinners, you envy the good time they're having, and you also envy the companionship they have. It's really easy to gather a crowd around doing sinful short-term pleasure-seeking things. It's really easy. Like, I just, if I just go spend $1,000 and give away free alcohol, real easy to get a crowd it is. You can gather a crowd very easily with that. So the idea of envying sinners is envying sort of the shared, fun life of the sinner. We feel alone. And we feel sad sometimes as a result of that loneliness in trying to apply the Word of God. We feel like we're missing out on friendship and on all the enjoyment of life. You are not missing out on real friendship. Beloved, let me tell you, the communion of the damned is far less enjoyable than the communion of the saints. The communion of the damned makes something like short-term pleasure, money, sex, drugs, food, whatever, into the thing to share for the good time. There's only so much of it to go around. There's only so much of it that people are willing to give. And they'd like to take it from you. The communion of the saints recognizes the shared knowledge of God as the good. Recognizes that our gifts are for giving. That our graces are for using. That the good life is the life of hard work, performing duties, and seeking the mutual good of each other. The good life involves a holy fellowship and communion in worship, 
in spiritual services, in seeking to edify each other, and in relieving each other in outward things as befits our ability and mutual needs. If I think that I have limits on my resources, but I think that using my resources to bless you is going to be for my good, that's very different than if I think I need my money to have a good time. The motivations in the communion of the saints are very different from the motivations of the sharers of good times. It is an infantile friendship that seeks to simply share in short-term pleasure. Anybody of any level of maturity can enjoy fun with another person without having very much agreement at all. The comparison of that kind of friendship with a friendship that seeks the glory of God and seeking to apply in detail the Word of God, those are very different things. And so, I think you will agree with me if I say that one is friendship and the other is not. Don't envy sinners. There is an airbrushed, glossy fakeness. But the thing to be zealous for is the fear of the Lord. You should want to increase in your own fear of the Lord and you should be zealous to see the fear of the Lord spread so that these people who are trying so hard to pretend like everything's okay would stop pretending that and would join you in the communion of the saints. That zeal makes the laughing, partying nonsense feel pathetic. When you get on Facebook, does it feel pathetic? The sinner wants to have novelty and amusement. Rather than envy the short-term pleasures of sin, instead be zealous to see sinners brought to fear God. Be zealous to see God known. Be zealous to see God glorified. Remember that the short-term pleasures of sin do not bring lasting good. There is a day of judgment. There is everlasting life. If you seek to see God known in the earth, you will not be disappointed. You will not lose the knowledge of God and you will not lose your reward. And so, do not let your heart envy sinners. Be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day. For surely there is a hereafter, and your hope will not be cut off. Saying 16, Bad company corrupts good morals. If you would be wise, then avoid fools. There's my summary. Let's see what it says. Hear, my son, and be wise, and guide your heart in the way. Do not mix with wine-bibbers or with gluttonous eaters of meat. For the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and drowsiness will clothe a man with rags. The command is to guide your heart in the way. In other words, learn to not build relationships unwisely. That's the, that's the generic thing. This is a part of the way. 
How do you build relationships? Don't build relationships unwisely. Learn to give your affections to the godly rather than the ungodly. Do not spend your time with those who spend their time pleasure-seeking. Drunkenness, gluttony, these are things that are violations of the seventh commandment. Drunkenness and gluttony waste time, spend resources, tend towards stupidity and waste, degrade the person who practices them. They are idolatrous worshiping of the stomach as the thing to be served. And that dishonors God. If you seek pleasure, you will find that work becomes less and less rewarding in your mind. As work decreases and laziness increases and pleasure-seeking increases, consumption increases. You're spending less time working. You're spending more time trying to fill your boredom, your idleness. And so consumption increases. Seeking pleasure increases poverty and laziness. That results in frustration because you run out of resources to consume for pleasure-seeking. And so the result is a frustration from the lack of pleasure. Now let's think about the other side of that. right? Gluttons and drunks are bad company and they influence and create bad morals in the person who previously was not influenced by them. On the other end of the spectrum, what should you do? You should seek friends who are serious-minded, who are sober-minded, Seeking friends with discipline and work ethic will bring more pleasure. It will make you more awake rather than drowsy. It will bring you plenty rather than poverty. It helps you to have honorable and pleasant attire rather than being dressed in rags. Which seems to be a rough explanation of modern style. So I have there for you the seventh commandment laid out in the larger catechism. I encourage you to to read it and to consider it in your own time to see how that relates to these other pleasure-seeking things. Saying 17, bring joy to yourself and to your parents by being wise. Verse 22, listen to your father who begot you and do not despise your mother when she is old. Buy the truth and do not sell it. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice, and he who begets a wise child will delight in him. Let your father and your mother be glad. Let her who bore you rejoice. So the knowledge of God is the good. That's wisdom when you know God. The command here is to buy the truth, to not sell it, to get wisdom, to get instruction, to get understanding. We've talked about this before, but think about the logic of it. If you buy a thing and never sell it, it's because it's never worthwhile to trade it for something else. It's only worth getting it. It's only worth buying it. Losing it is never worth it. Which means whatever that thing is that you only buy and that you never sell, that's the highest good. That's the most valuable thing. That's the thing for which all other things exist. 
wisdom, the knowledge of God. The glory of God is his attributes. And as you know him, as you get the attributes into your mind, you are taking possession of God. If you try to sell off the knowledge of God, you're selling God. Buy the truth. Do not sell it. Now, the relationship of truth and wisdom to righteousness is causal. Wisdom causes righteousness. So, listen to your father. Don't despise your mother. Listen to the teaching of the truth that they give. The father of the righteous will greatly rejoice, and he who begets a wise child will delight in him. So, the motivation to do this is, you know, if you listen to instruction, you'll be wise, you'll be righteous, and the result will be that you give great joy to your parents. Do you love your parents? This is a way of giving them joy. Let your father and your mother be glad, and let her who bore you rejoice. Now this is also a statement about what you should think about when you're raising children. Do you care to see them righteous? Instruct them in wisdom. You will take joy in that. So this is a reminder about the compact across generations. If you love your parents, be wise, be righteous. If you love your children, help them to be wise and righteous. If you give wisdom to those under your authority, you will get joy. Be wise for yourself and in preparing the next generation. Give wisdom to those under your authority. You will give joy to them. You will give joy to your superiors. Think about this. There's a joy in seeing your children walk in the truth. There is a joy in seeing your grandchildren walk in the truth. You start to magnify joy across generations. There is a compounding. This is an example of how if you grow in the knowledge of God, you don't somehow take it from anybody else. You increase the possession of others and you increase the enjoyment of it by others. It concentrates. It magnifies. It's, it's, it's like a relativity chart if you look at gravity and space and you see those bending of space things if you can concentrate enough truth wisdom into people and have them be around each other it basically turns into a black hole of joy just boop straight down just a parabola There's a gravitational concentration of joy that comes as wisdom is increased in the individual and spread to those around them. So sons and daughters and congregants, make it a joy to be led. Love wisdom and love righteousness. Be holy and cause those who rule over you to praise God that you are under their care. It will not be good for you if you bring grief to those who rule you 
by wickedness. I would strongly encourage any of the young or any of the not to listen to Thoughts for Young Men by J.C. Ryle. It does a great job of dealing with the difficulties of youth and of being a young man in particular, but it does a fantastic job of kind of laying out how so much of the grief that comes to people who are in authority is from some young man who would not be bridled by teaching. You can give great joy to yourself and to others by buying the truth and refusing to sell it. Saying 18, flee uncleanness and flee the love of pleasure. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways, for a harlot is a deep pit, and a seductress is a narrow well. She also lies in wait as for a victim, and increases the unfaithful among men. Now, it starts out with, give me your heart. And this idea of observe what I'm doing. The two dangers you'll remember from the beginning of the book are the gang and the harlot. The harlot is a danger for young men because of the desire for pleasure and this feeling of belonging. And harlots are those who are trained to be able to use the things that help people to feel like they're accepted, feel like they belong, feel like they're respected and loved. But it's fake. The gang sort of does the same thing with the sense of we'll build wealth together, right? the sharing in the, the purse. In reality, both are wasteful and disloyal. So the father says, give me your heart. And sons, if you think you can trust your friends more than your fathers, you are wrong. Father says, son, give me your heart. And let your eyes observe my ways. Now, what is being observed there in the context? What's being observed there is how the father avoids the harlot. Son, give me your heart. Don't give it away. Don't give it foolishly to wicked women. Don't give it away to wicked young men. Give me your heart. Watch me. Follow my example of applying the law of God. Why? Because, son, the harlot is a deep pit. The seductress is a narrow well. What's the deal with a a deep pit and a narrow well? Well, a deep pit, it's always interesting to go up to the edge of some sort of cavern, deep hole. You go, I wonder how how long that goes down. Kick a rock in. Five seconds before that thing shot back up with sound. It's pretty deep. Right, so you, you have this desire to play around on the edge. A narrow well. The desire to look in, to seek to get something out of it. You go, you know, well, maybe water, you're thirsty, you're going to satisfy thirst, and you're trying to pull the water out of the well. It's a narrow well. There's a temptation to look in. There's a temptation to try to go get something you think you need. 
And in both cases, there is a world of hurt if you fall in, and it is hard to get out. There are a few things that are as entangling as wicked women. And when you become accustomed to satisfying lusts, it is a difficult thing to restrain yourself again. We're also told, not only is the harlot a deep pit or a narrow well, she also lies in wait as for a victim and increases the unfaithful among men. She is a huntress. She lurks. She sets up traps. She waits for a likely victim. And when she catches one, she increases the traitors in the race of man. She increases the unfaithful. She increases the covenant breakers of the race of Adam. You will be made into a worthless man. You know, it's an interesting empirical study. If you look at suicide notes, last calls, that kind of stuff from men who commit suicide. If you made like a word cloud, had the biggest words be the ones that are repeated most often. Men who commit suicide, commit suicide, and they say of themselves, I am worthless. I'm useless. I don't generate value. If you want to feel like everything you've ever built has been torn down, associate with harlots you will feel useless very fast. And soon, their affections will find themselves purchased by a higher bidder. So there's a great danger for young men. Because of sexual lust and because of naivete, because of the charm of the deceptive type of harlotry that exists to fall into that. We have more easily accessible harlotry now than ever before in the history of man. The internet, movies, the general public nakedness that exists, these are all things that we have to be aware of. And so there is a great danger there. And fathers need to show to sons and grandfathers need to help, and pastors need to help sons to avoid sexual sin and to see the example of how you avoid it. You don't play around by the edge of the hole. You don't spend a bunch of time with harlots. You don't put yourself in situations where you're seeing a bunch of stuff you shouldn't see. You don't watch movies with nudity in them. You avoid this stuff. You say, this is dangerous. This is a deep pit. This is a narrow well. This is a huntress who is hunting you. That is the type of behavior that fathers should show to their sons in dealing with the dangers of sexual sin. We come to the end, and we're in this appendix. The attached on section. And I believe that this is a last major warning to say, don't live for the present Living for the present is lethal to the compact across generations. If you are unwilling to think about the future, if all you are willing to think about is present pleasure, you will certainly be the weak link across generations. You will break. 
The only way to have strength to carry on through difficulty is to be mission-focused. Why would anybody ever go through anything difficult? To get something done. Why would you ever pay a cost? Because you think you're going to get something. We cannot live for the present that is lethal to the compact across generations. So now as a reminder, flee drunkenness, flee the love of pleasure. Love of pleasure is the love of present gratification. I want it now. So we have this long section about avoiding drunkenness now. And why do people get drunk? Well, have a good time. Or to escape. The escape does not last long enough. The escape is not good enough. The pleasure is not sufficient. It is replaced by a worse pain. So it says this, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has contentions? Who has complaints? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who linger long at the wine. Those who go in search of mixed wine. Do not look on the wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes around smoothly, or when it swirls around smoothly. At the last, it bites like a, vi- like a serpent and it stings like a viper. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart will utter perverse things. Yes, you will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, or heart, the heart of the sea. Or like one who lies at the top of the mast, saying, They have struck me, but I was not hurt. They have beaten me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake that I may seek another drink? This relates back to saying 16 and 18 and to the seventh commandment. Remind ourselves, what's, what's saying 16? Saying 16 was this summary. Bad company corrupts good morals. If you'd be wise, avoid fools. Talks about wine, bibbers, and gluttons. 18 was to flee uncleanness, flee the love of pleasure. That was talking about harlots, the seductress. So you see the relationship here. So this is sort of this poetic blowout of that idea. It talks about if you pursue pleasure, if you pursue drunkenness, you'll bring woe, sorrow, contentions, complaints, wounds, and redness of the eyes. Okay, woe. What's woe? Woe. Woe. The oracles of woe. You have oracles of blessing. The prophet comes and says... Blessed art thou. Here's the good stuff. We just, you sing Psalm 32, it starts out with blessed is the man. right? 128, same thing. Psalm 1, blessed is the man. Those are oracles of weal. Oracles of wealth. Oracles of blessing. Oracles of prosperity. An oracle of woe is the other side. Woe is me. Cursed am I. It's a pronouncement of condemnation and of pain. Curse. Suffering. Who has woe? That's the question. Who has woe? It goes on, talks about sorrow. Who lives a life of sadness? All you're working through life, curse and sorrow. That's not toil. I don't know what is. 
contentions and complaints. Fight with people all the time. I just complain. Have you ever seen anybody have a little bit too much to drink and they start to complain about things? Loosens the lips, makes it easier for them to say things that maybe they shouldn't have been saying. They get negative. Picks fights, complains about stuff. You have stuff to complain about. Do stupid things. Come sober. Things are worse than when you were sober before you got drunk. Things to complain about. You have wounds without cause. You wake up the next day, I don't remember getting that. There's no good reason for me to have had that. It wasn't like I was working on something. Didn't have to set up a barbed wire fence or anything. Redness of the eyes. You tired? Yeah. Why is that? You didn't get much sleep? Actually, I was knocked out for about 12 to 18 hours. Lots of time unconscious in bed. Don't feel great, though. The decline of health, the breakdown of the body, of toil, strife, and body breakdown, all magnified by drunkenness. Seekers of drugs to deaden the mind and to focus on pleasure are those who are setting themselves up for woe, sorrow, contentions, complaints, wounds without cause, and redness of eyes. That's who. And so there's this warning. There's the warning that if we try to focus on the pleasure, it says, don't look on the wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it swirls around smoothly. When drunkenness looks glamorous, when escape looks delightful, look away. There are lesser forms of this. There are greater forms of this. Right? The opioid crisis right, is a pretty magnified form of this. A lot of that's men, by the way. Two-thirds of the people that OD from this opioid thing are, are men. Because they're despairing. They're looking for something to escape. They're taking it, and they're by themselves. When you drink or take drugs by yourself, that's about escape. The seekers of drugs to deaden the mind, to stop thinking about problems. The thing is, the drugs kill the pain and they cause more. It makes you think badly and speak badly. It makes you take absurd risks without the prospect of gain. It was anybody drunk or high, do something really stupid and dangerous, and there was not a particularly good incentive to do that thing. This wasn't like, I'm getting paid a really high amount, so it's worth the risk. This is... I ran out in the middle of the street and played chicken with a car while yelling at it because I was drunk, thought it would be fun, and then ran off and was hoping to get a laugh out of the guys. That's the kind of reward for that kind of risk. This is the kind of silliness you see. It makes you climb up the mast and lie down there. It makes you Go to the heart of the sea and lie down there. These are places that are absurd places to lie down. They are not places to take a nap. These are dangerous places. What's the reward? And then, 
They struck me, but I was not hurt. You do these dangerous things, you get into a dangerous situation, you go, yeah, but no big deal. It was really dumb, I know. But it didn't really hurt that bad. You take absurd risks without the prospect of gain. And you will be insensible of harms. You won't see them. You will not care. You'll go, yeah, I was struck. Yeah, that was bad, but not that bad. And there's a downward spiral. And at the end of all of that awfulness, you wake up and you say, I'd like to do it again as soon as possible. So you become a slave to the drug. You care about nothing else. You don't even care about fixing the harms anymore. The insensibility of it. And soon, the slovenliness, the disgustingness, the the brokenness, the misery of it is such that people look at it and they wonder, how could this ever have gotten here? It was a spiral. The description of that spiral is laid out infallibly for us right here. So you get to saying 20. Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. Why is that? Because evil men are like the drunk in saying 19. Evil men are like the harlot in saying 18. Evil men are like the glutton and the drunkard in saying 16. Don't be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. For their heart devises violence, and their lips talk of troublemaking. The Tenth Commandment teaches us to be content with what God has given to us. We tend to desire what we become familiar with. Do not let yourself become comfortable, familiar, or accustomed to the habits of the wicked. Spend your time around the things that you want to become like and the things that you want to come to enjoy. Some things are an acquired taste. And for the race of man, born in sin, holiness is an acquired taste. I don't like this. Well, I would expect that. Because we were born in iniquity. Spend your time around the things that you want to come to like. Do not spend your time with the wicked or look upon their possessions or positions with envy. Look forward to the end they face. A short-term mind is lethal to the covenant across generations. You need to look at sin and not just look at the short-term pleasure. You need to learn to look at sin and think about the end that it will come to. That end is the end in the day of judgment, but it's also the cycle that we saw laid out for those who have woe from drunkenness. And it's also the way in which harlotry leads to destruction. It's all of those things. Seeing the way in which sin is self-destructive in this life and the way in which it destroys our sense of strength and integrity. Do not spend your time with the wicked. Look upon their possessions or positions with envy. 
Look forward to the end they face. Spend your time with the saints. Look upon their gifts and grace and be grateful to God for it. Seek to learn from their godly ways and to help them to build and to grow. The plans of the wicked and the words of the wicked will habituate you to evil. They will desensitize you. Things that were once shocking become normal. Things that are normal become your practice. Things that become your practice become your habit. Do not be envious of evil men nor desire to be with them. Why? Because their hearts devise evil plans. Their hearts devise violence. Their lips talk of troublemaking. You're going to witness violence. You're going to hear about troublemaking. And you're going to either be repulsed and stop being with them, or you're going to push past that and become accustomed to it. The plans of the wicked and the words of the wicked will habituate you to evil. The plans of the righteous and the words of the righteous will habituate you to righteousness. Learn to plan to do good, as opposed to devising violence. Learn to stop your mouth from idle words and evil suspicions. Learn to speak wisdom and to build each other up in wisdom and reputation. What we talk about has an impact on what we think about. What others say can spur us on or it can rein us in. And woe if you are reined in from righteousness and spurred on to wickedness. You never had anybody do that to you? A covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. Covenant is formed by oaths. It is defined by God. And it's a life or death promise. There is a covenant across generations. All covenants are binding across generations. And if we think only about now and only about us, do you see how disconnected the individualism of American life, modern American life, not founding America, not historic America, modern American life, all that matters is you and all that matters is now. Compare that to you are found in a web of duties with obligations that span lifetimes. And what matters is not so much today as the future. Those are entirely different perspectives about how to live life. And the biblical one is covenantal and focuses upon the future and it focuses on the web of obligations. We should accept the teaching and the inheritance of our fathers when it is in accordance with the word of God as a precious treasure. A treasure of the building work that they spent their lives on and the guarding work that they expended great toil to preserve. We will want to work and to keep and to pass on worthwhile things to generations that follow. When you die, you want to be able to look back and think, I did useful things and I gave those things to people who are still alive. If we're to do unto others as we would have them do unto us, what does that mean about the work of our forebearers? We should accept the warnings and the positive instructions that are poured into our ears, that are pounded onto our hearts. 
by the covenanting work of our forefathers. We should accept these things with gladness and with gratitude. We should protect what has been given to us. We should pass on what has been given to us, and it should be better than when we got it. There are generations around us that are growing up, and there are generations that are yet unborn that will be added to this church. It is our duty to take the covenant inheritance we have received and to improve upon it. And that takes a future orientation. It makes it so that we don't adopt the lethal perspective, the perspective that's lethal to that life or death covenant of saying what matters is now and all that matters is me. Comments, questions, objections from the voting members, and those with speaking rights. Mr. Price? Uh, in the same portion, you mentioned uh, that the kind of part comes up quite a lot. And uh, that kind of uh, got some gears turned in my head. And now I kind of come to it. Is there a reason why the heart is being falsely attributed to thoughts that essentially the mind produces, especially given that the mind or the head um, are specifically mentioned in the Bible uh, in various other chapters as essentially this origins of thought? Uh, it seems like that would be uh, a false attribution to Yeah, so the brain does not generate thought. The heart does not generate thought. The kidneys do not generate thought. They are all used symbolically to refer to the inner man. Um, and so they are all things that are inside of us. And the idea is, and you'll also see like bowels or uh, things like that. So you'll, you'll have other things that are attributed. But the point is, it's all referring to the inner man. So those are all used as symbols of the mind. So the mind is not the brain. The mind is the soul, it's the thinking, it's the spirit. Um, the brain is the physical organ. So I would suggest to you the relationship of the brain to the spirit or mind is that the brain is the control panel of the mind by which the mind controls the body. That there's an integration point uh, where there's an influence. Uh, so that's, that's my understanding. So does that address it or am I missing your point? It's, it's, no, I don't think it addresses it because it's, again, it's attributing the heart with the thought process, which seems like that, that should be uh, going to the brain in this case. At least I mean, with the mind, the same with the mind, if that's the case, if that's kind of making a different there. Um, and, and like that's kind of goes into number 19 as well. Yeah, so it's not literally referring to the physical object that pumps blood, right? It's, it's referring to the inner man, so it's using the heart as a symbol, and it's referring to the mind or spirit, right? So, I mean, let me, let me ask you a question. Do you believe that the brain, by physical reactions, by chemical reactions, by electrical transmissions, do you think that the physical activity in the brain creates thought? Yes. Okay. And that's been shown research where you're able to have kind of waves be able to pick up other electronic impulses and move people without arms have electronic arms that can have 
Okay. So pretend for a second you die by falling into a volcano. Your brain's gone. Will you think anymore? Well, so when you die, your spirit does not disappear, right? You, you continue. You, you go immediately, if you believe the gospel, to paradise. And if you don't, you go immediately to torment, right? So there's a continuation of thinking, okay? So the brain is vaporized, and there's a continuation of thought. So if that's true, if there is a spirit, if there is an immortal soul, then the brain is not the causer of thought. But I'm not, I fail to see how the heart would fall in with that. If that were the case, where you, you just had there, then would your heart still be pumping blood and be a part of that organism? It's, I don't know. Um, it's just like the kidneys and the bowels aren't, right? So why does the Bible attribute thought to multiple different locations inside of people? And I think it's you have the same author doing multiple, even in books. So it's, the whole book's written by God, but you have the same human author attributing that. I mean, you see David doing all of it, right, in, in the Psalms. So the, the issue is not that King David, like on Wednesday, thought it was the heart that thought, and then on Thursday thought it was the kidneys, and then on you know, Friday thought that it was you know, the bowels. The issue is he's using different figurative language. And so each one is a figure of speech, and it's using a symbol, some internal organ, as a symbol for the inner man, the, the, the place of thought. Does that satisfy your concern? I, I think it's, yeah, I think it's best on short term. I think uh, I would have to do a little more research on it. Look at it. Okay. Great. Okay. Understood. Any other comments, questions, objections? Mr. Roberts. Thank you for your teaching this morning this afternoon. That really helped me see Appreciate it. Praise God. Thank you. All right. And let's pray. Father, we ask that you would cause your word to enliven our hearts, that you would teach us, that you would deepen our knowledge of you, that you would cause us more and more to be transformed after the image of Christ. Father, I ask that you would help us to search the scriptures, to figure things out, to dig in and find things as questions arise. Father, I ask that you would cause our private worship and household worships to be useful to us, that the public preaching of the word would be a small portion of the digging in to your truth that we receive. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ.